Hebrews chapter 3, and beginning in verse 7. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray together. Great God, be exalted. May your truth be proclaimed. May your people hear it. May we know the truth, and the truth set us free. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Of 600,000 men plus women and children who set off for the promised land under Moses, of 600,000 men plus women and children, only two made it to the promised land. Only two ever got there. All the others died in the wilderness. You think about it, that's a lot of funerals every day. There was a direct route that would take two weeks for the journey, but they didn't get there in 40 years. It took 40 years, not because Israel was led by a man, and men by definition don't stop to ask for directions. That wasn't it. God was leading the people, and he led them as he wished by pillar of cloud and the fire by night. Every step of the way, they were led by God, and God, who had delivered them from bondage, was causing them to live in the wilderness 40 years. After they were redeemed, after they were delivered, they endured this time of testing, this trial. The people of Israel had heard God's voice, and yet they hardened their heart. What a lesson for us all. I'd like you to keep your place in the book of Hebrews, if you can, and go back to the Old Testament, the second book of our Bible, the book of Exodus. And in chapters 13 and 14, we see the miracles associated with the Exodus. They came through the Red Sea. They'd already endured the plagues as they witnessed Egypt under those plagues. But now the people of God had come through the Red Sea as on dry land and had seen the entire Egyptian army destroyed. So we come to chapter 16. Israel is now in the desert. And if we go to Exodus chapter 16, look with me at the second and third verse. Exodus Chapter 16, second verse reads this way. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom their reaction, except we often do the same. We are prone to grumbling and complaining. They were given miraculous provision, the manna, from heaven, yet the complaints department was very busy. They were out of water. Let's go to chapter 17, and starting in verse 2. End of verse 1 says, There was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. It seems as you read through these accounts in Exodus and elsewhere that on any given day, either God or Moses wanted these people dead. And if they both agreed that they wanted them dead, it was going to be a bad day. But usually one or the other uh, resisted that temptation. And uh, so that is the story. They were out of water and they grumbled. And God intervened and brought the water. As we continue, let's... uh, Understand, as we go back to the book of Hebrews now, I ask you to keep your place there. I hope you did that. Hebrews and chapter 3, we read these words in verse 7. Therefore, and this is another significant therefore, and we always want to repeat this, it bears repeat. Whenever you see a therefore, always ask what it's there for. It's on the basis of what has come before the word therefore is now before us. You don't normally start a phone conversation. Therefore. Now, you've said something before you ever get to that. And on the basis of what has come before, the therefore of verse 1 of chapter 3, therefore, holy brothers, consider Jesus, Jesus superior to Moses, Jesus is building the house and is the owner of the house. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. Two words are particularly significant here. The words rebellion and testing. You find that in verse 8. Now, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek Septuagint, And that is uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Covenant. That's very, very clear. But in the original Hebrew, behind the word rebellion is the word meribah. Can we say that word out loud? Meribah. And behind the word testing is the word masa. Keep your place in Hebrews. We'll be back. Go back to Psalm 95. This was read earlier in the service, but I'd like us to go there, keeping your place in Hebrews. Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, 
and the sheep of his hand. And there we have now the quotation we find in Hebrews chapter 3 here in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. With that fresh in your minds, go back to Hebrews and we read these words. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. As I say, the writer of Hebrews was quoting the Greek Septuagint rather than the original Hebrew. Now, as we continue with this, we see the fact that rebellion and testing are words before us. And they are hostile words to our senses. We don't like that. We don't want to be called rebels. But that was God's assessment of this people. Keep your place in Hebrews. Let's go back to Exodus. Now you know why you bring your Bible to church. On hot days in Phoenix, it's good for air circulation to go to different verses in our Bibles. Now, what is being referred to in uh, Psalm 95 is certainly what we read in Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. We've read this. We've read to verse 4. Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do to this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And here's the reply from God. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Look at this. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Testing and rebellion. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Later on, in fact, let's go to the fourth book of our Bibles, the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then we find the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. And later here we find the word Meribah again. This is now 40 years later at a place called Kadesh, Numbers chapter 20. Once again, it's significant, Israel's in need of water. Read with me verse 2. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Everybody else died. Why didn't we die? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. 
Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, speak to the rock, tell the rock before uh, their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Obviously, totally supernatural event. You don't normally walk up to rocks, speak to them, and water gush out. This was an act of God, and he used the means of Moses and his speech. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. Such was the mercy of God. And the congregation drank and their livestock. But there were severe consequences for Moses' reaction. He was angry and he let it show. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore... Look at this as a consequence. You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, there's that word again, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Wow, Moses had been there for all the events of the Exodus, and now for 40 years had led the people of God and had suffered with the complaints and grumbling of the people. And in one reaction, an overreaction in anger, God says, that's it. Because you will not, because you did not esteem me as revered and hallowed before the people, you'll not enter into the land. Just as an aside, I remember reading through the Gospels and seeing the account of the transfiguration of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you remember, the Lord Jesus was there and a gentleman named Moses, as well as Elijah. And it dawned on me, he actually did get to the Promised Land. Transfiguration Mountain is in Israel, but not in his earthly lifetime. Now, we've read these words, we've read them, and we've seen the beginning and ending of the wilderness journey And I believe that helps us understand that this is how the entire 40 years was marked by rebellion, by disobedience, time of testing in the wilderness. And there was a hardening of heart, and with its root, we find unbelief. And there was no excuse for it. They had seen amazing things, and yet they weren't believing that God was with them. They were simply going to die in the wilderness. And they had content for God and for God's appointed leader, Moses. Grumbling, complaining, and rebellion and disobedience marked that generation. It's a terrible example. Let's go back now to the book of Hebrews, and we read in chapter 3, verse 7, verse 8, excuse me, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me, that's God, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So there's the warning. Today, 
If you hear his voice, today, do not harden your hearts. So what we have before us in the account of the example is the exact opposite of what we've read in verses 1 through 3. The Lord Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful, but this generation from verse 7 onwards was not. This is what the opposite looks like. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And where this passage is taking us is to verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be, look at this, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is very possible to be in and around the things of God, to be in church service after church service, to see the hand of God in the service and see uh, the, the beauty of the liturgy and to be around Christian principles and Christian events and services and not be a Christian. I want to ask you today, are you a follower of Christ? That's what it means to believe in Christ, is to follow Him. That's what it means. And the warning is very clear. Don't allow yourself to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care lest you be an unbeliever, lest you not be a follower of Christ. God uses means while we're here in this earthly pilgrimage. We have tests and sometimes you think, I didn't sign up for this. I, I, I didn't know I'd go through all this when I said yes to the Lordship of Jesus. I didn't know, but God knew. And he puts us through trials here. Guess what? There will be no trials there. On the other side, in heaven, we'll not have an enemy to face. It's here that the Lord spreads a table before us in the presence of our enemies. There won't be enemies there. Praise the Lord. Can you say amen? Every Christian, one man wrote, is sure to be tested in this life. Trials will manifest the reality of our faith or the lack thereof. A.W. Pink writes this, Testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it, as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependency upon Him, is made evident. There's a lot in that. Trials reveal where our hearts are. Why do we go through what we go through? To reveal what's in our hearts. As we go to Hebrews chapter 3, that's where this passage is taking us. And yet, I skipped over something very significant. We've looked a little bit at verse 8 and onwards, but we were quite quick to go over verse 7, and I'd like us to go back there, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, where we read these words, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice. And then we're told, do not harden your hearts. As the Holy Spirit 
says. What happens then is Psalm 95 is quoted, and we've been there. I would love for this to be a huge rock thrown into your theological pond, what you believe about God. I'd love that. It's a mighty rock. It's profound. It's incredibly significant, and it's this. Are you ready? The Bible is God speaking to us. You might say, well, I know that. I'm hopeful and glad that that might indeed be the case, but do you and I really get it? Do we really get it? The Bible is God speaking to us. It's huge. Notice what the text says. Today, if you hear his voice. Well, that's the quotation. But the start of the verse says this. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice. What are you getting at? What are you trying to say? I'm saying this. It does not say, as the Holy Spirit said. It says, as the Holy Spirit says. That's significant. As the Holy Spirit says. And then there's a quotation from the Bible. When you or someone else says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, you better be then quoting a Bible verse. Not something that you thought up or something that happened between your ears. I was raised in the charismatic sector of the church where someone would say in the meeting, the Holy Spirit says, and it's not the Bible that then is read, but the Holy Spirit showed me this, so the Holy Spirit showed me that, and I realized it did not have the weight of Scripture. It did not have the safety of Scripture. It was someone's thoughts rather than the Word of God. But this is where I know the Holy Spirit has said, and guess what? Is speaking. That's huge. I've said it already, but I want to labor this. The Bible is God talking to us. It's the voice of God. It's the Word of God. We say, turn in your Bibles. Turn to the Word of God. And as you and I are reading and hearing the Word of God, we're hearing the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And God is speaking every time the Bible is read. That's huge. The Holy Spirit says, not the Holy Spirit spoke once long ages ago, long ages past. No, the Holy Spirit says, says is a present tense word. So, what we have here is something remarkable. The Holy Spirit says, and then Psalm 95 is quoted. What we have here are three things we need to understand. Firstly, the psalmist recounts the events of around 500 years before when we're reading what we read in Psalm 95. And then he applies it to his generation. The psalmist is writing to his generation long after the time of Exodus. He's probably writing around the time of King David's life. Then secondly, the Hebrew writer here does the exact same thing. He applies the word that was said to those who heard Psalm 95 in their generation, and he applies it to first century Jews and said, 
this. The Holy Spirit says. And third, now, 2,000 years on from the first century, I'm applying, by the preaching of God's Word, this text to each of us here today. And I'm saying to all of us, all of you, the Holy Spirit says. That's huge. That's the right view of our Bibles. 2 Peter 1, let me quote it, verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, made more sure. More sure than seeing Jesus on the Transfiguration Mountain. That's the context, as the Apostle Peter writes. We've got the Word of God more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the right view of our Bibles. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. We're not going to delve too much into the passage here because if you get in, it'll be almost impossible to get out. But I'm going to draw something that I believe will stand the test of not only time, but of true exegesis, drawing out from the text what's in the text. Matthew 22. Jesus was dealing with the Sadducees. What was easy to remember with their big hang-up, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how I remember it. Unlike the Pharisees, they were far icy. They saw into the future, believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Makes sense. So he's dealing with the Sadducees, and look what he says. We're delving into the text. Matthew 22. Look at this. Verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, look at this next phrase. It's huge. It's like Hebrews 3, verse 7. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's the significance of this? He's looking people in the eye who were living centuries after God had said something. He's quoting the book of Exodus in the next verse. And he says this, Have you, first century people, not read what was said to them? No, you by God. This is Jesus' view of Scripture. When you're reading it, when you're hearing it, God is speaking to you. Could you pass me a bulletin, please? Thank you. Turn to the middle of the bulletin, the actual bulletin part of the bulletin. This is something that's in the bulletin every week on purpose. Do you see the 
section where it says our worship on the right-hand side of the page, the middle. Third paragraph down. Quoting a verse from the book of Exodus, Jesus said, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And it's a quotation from Matthew 22. In these words, his view of the scriptures was made clear. Whenever the Bible is read or heard, God is speaking directly to us. In light of this, central to our worship is the reading and proclamation of the Word of God by way of verse-by-verse exposition. Because God is addressing us in every Bible-based sermon we hear, how we listen and respond is all part of how we worship God today. Some people have the idea the worship part of the service is the singing and then you move on from there. No, 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 no. This is worship. My preaching is hopefully worship to God. Your listening is hopefully worship to God. How we listen when God speaks is all part of the worship. So back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. As the Holy Spirit says, quoting Scripture, not some personal revelation, not some thought he had, not something that happened between his ears, no. This, the Bible, is God speak. It's God talk. This is the Word of God. When the Scripture speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks speaks. Let me say this, he does so with full authority, with all authority. Nothing that ever happened between my ears rose to the level of scripture. And guess what, nothing that happens between your ears also. He speaks with total authority. How silly it then sounds when someone says, I believe the Lord might be saying, Find me a prophet who said that. Prophet Jeremiah walks into town and says, I've got a hunch the Lord might be saying something. No, this is what the Lord says. I don't particularly like the NIV translation, nearly infallible version. (laughs) One thing I like about it is when it comes to the phrase of thus saith the Lord, as the King James puts it, it says it like this, this is what the Lord says. I like that. In other words, you've heard from CNN, you've heard from Fox News, you've heard from these guys and those guys, and you've got your own thoughts, but this is what the Lord says. I love that. God speaks with all authority every time he speaks. That's why I don't believe he's now doing, after the canon of Scripture, is clothed. The same thing as he was doing in the first century when the foundation was being laid. He speaks with authority. If the Bible's being rightly interpreted, everyone in the room is hearing from God. There's been times, I'm sure you'll be upset by this, that people have walked out of the service when I'm preaching. Can you believe that? They've actually walked out. And what causes me to think and have sleep at night is this. When I lay my head on the pillow, 
50 years from now, what I said would still be true because it was a right interpretation of Scripture. There are books in my bookshelves that are really jokes, but they weren't jokes at the time. Prophecy books on who the Antichrist is from the 70s, all about Henry Kissinger. And then that guy in Russia, you know, the guy who had the mark there, he, he's got to be the Antichrist. And so it goes on, and it looks so silly now. I thank my God I didn't write books when I believed the silly things I wrote and believed. I want and I read after things that will be true 100 years from now, should we live. They were true 50 years ago, they're true today because they're right understandings of Scripture. God speaks with total authority. He speaks personally, directly, dynamically. You're in Hebrews 3, look at chapter 4, verse 12, familiar words. For the word of God is, not was, is living and active. Don't buy into the idea that the Bible is a dead book and the Holy Spirit has to come upon it to make it alive. It is alive. It is alive and well, thank you very much. It's living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. The Word of God, his. Isn't that interesting? Not its sight, his sight. The Word of God is a person. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, summing this up. What is God saying to us? He's saying, today. Today. This is an urgent message. I was at a church service in a church that shall be nameless to protect the guilty, where at the end of the message, the man up front said this, over the next six weeks, I'd like you to come back and consider Jesus. And as the weeks progress, I'd like you to make an informed decision about whether you will follow him or not. I didn't say anything, but as I walked out, I just shook my head. And I inwardly wept. You don't know that anyone is going to be alive a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now. There's an urgency with the gospel that says, Today! Today! Today, what will you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Today, there's no time to delay. Today, you don't know you've got tonight. Today, you don't know you've got tomorrow. It's not promised. You have no divine covenant from God that says you will live to Monday. Today, today, if you hear his voice, there is an impossible to even describe the immensity of this, the weight of the need to hear. We need a word from God, and we've got 66 books of it. Our need to hear and our need to obey is urgent. It's pressing. It's priority number one. You need the Lord Jesus Christ more than you need your next breath. Number one priority. Today, 
Today, don't put it off. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today. The Bible goes even further in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Now is the day of salvation. You don't even know you've got the full day left, but you've got now. Now. What? Today, if you hear his voice. If you hear his voice. This is not about someone else hearing the voice. Where do we hear the voice? In the scripture. The Bible is God speaking to us. If you hear his voice, not your spouse, not your mother, not your parents, not your sister, not anyone in this world other than you. If you, today, if you hear his voice, and by the way, he is speaking Notice, if you hear his voice. It does not ask this question, if you hear, you are hearing. When the Bible's being read, God is speaking. So the question is not if he speaks, but if you hear, you. There's something I'd like to introduce as a concept. Enlightened self-interest. In other words, when the lights come on from you, it's to your good, to your advantage, to do what is revealed to you in the light. When the Bible speaks about forgiveness and then says, if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you, it's enlightened self-interest to say, oh, I better forgive then. If you understand that God is speaking to you, it's enlightened self-interest to say, okay, I'm listening, I'm attentive, you got me, this is priority, I'm putting out everything else to the side and I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen like I've never listened. This is priority. I must hear. I must obey the voice of God for myself, for the well-being of my own soul. Where do you stand with the Lord Jesus? If you're not obeying him, you're still in rebellion that word we've looked at already. You're still disobeying? You're actually saying no. Christ himself, in his kingly reign, is offering you his rule. And you're saying, nah, nah, not going to do it. Maybe later down the line, but no. What is really disturbing about that is this. Whenever we make a choice, we make a choice according to the strongest inclination we have at that moment of choice. Why did you do it? I don't know. But at that moment, if I sinned, it's because I loved my sin more than I loved the Savior. At that moment. 20 seconds later, I might have deep regret. But at that moment, I wanted the sin. Why do people choose Christ? Because God is very, very kind to take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh that beats to know Christ. And that's why we say yes when Jesus said, follow me. It's not because we mustered up faith. No, faith was a gift. It's not like we worked out who Jesus is. No, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. 
Regeneration, coming alive spiritually, comes before faith. Unless a man is first born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. How do we enter? By faith. Unless God gives you sight. Has he given you sight? Have you seen Jesus is the Son of God? Have you seen it? Then today, if you hear his voice, don't go about hardening your heart. And what's disturbing if you're still saying no is that, think about it, your heart actually doesn't want him. You don't want his reign. You don't want his rule. We choose according to our strong, strongest desire at the moment of choice. What is what is so helpful to see is that even when people are in hell, because they are not regenerated, because they are not given new hearts, I used to have the idea if someone just walked in as a preacher to those in hell and said, all of you can come out if you'll only bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus, repent and believe. Do you know, every one of them would throw stones and just get that guy out of hell. We don't want to hear it. Their heart has not been changed even in hell. Under his wrath, they hate the God they know. Such is the hostility of the human heart. So it should concern us if at age 12, 15, 35, 75, we're still saying no. And hear the word of the Lord today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I don't know, you don't know how long you have to live. This is the most important thing you hear in your lifetime, right now. God is speaking. Without a change of heart, we won't say yes. But when God in his grace, opens up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. You ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus? And they say, well, that's nice for you. I just don't see it. You, you find something in the hymns. I've never liked them. And you walk away and you just think they don't get it. They just, that's right, they don't get it. They can't see. Their eyes haven't been opened. They need more than a corrective vision. They need Blind eyes taken away to be restored to sight, to see Christ. And when you see him, you think, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more magnificent, there's nothing more, there's nothing in this world comparable to Christ. I just want to see him. I want to go to heaven to see him. Not to just have a place where I can play golf free of charge and score hole in ones. Free rent. Heaven won't be heaven if Jesus isn't there. But we were gonna, we're going to see him. One day our eyes will see him. Our faith shall be sight. Let me ask you this as we wrap this up. Why? Why would you not listen and obey? Lay it out. Give me your eight reasons why. And every one of them I just say, as an answer, Christ. What will you do with Christ? Who do you say that I am? Actually, if we're still saying no, we actually want our rebellion. We want our defiance.
I trust, I hope you hear my heart. You don't want the Lord Jesus to reign over you. Why? See, the gospel is good news about a kingdom. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I once heard a definition of the kingdom. I wrote it down, and it's still, all these decades later, so very helpful. What is a kingdom? We don't live in, the, in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. I think with the state of fallen man, it's the best form of government unless King Jesus comes back, and that'll be different. Because at least in a democracy, if you get a bad king, you can get him out. <laughs> well, that's the theory. <laughs> what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a people ruled by one man whose will is law. He has no government to debate his will. He simply declares his will. And he has that job of reigning by inheritance. He's king because he's the son of a father who was also king. He has no cabinet, and certainly there is no opposition. He's not put into that position by a vote, nor can he be voted out of that position. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a kingdom. And there's no kingdom without a king. The word kingdom is formed from two words sandwiched together, king and domain. The domain of the king, kingdom, kingdom. A kingdom is the king's domain, the extent of his realm where he has every right to rule and reign, and he exercises that right. That wouldn't be good news, the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, how's that good news? Some people in some places get someone in power who can't be voted out. That's often bad news because of the character of the one in charge. A tyrant on the throne would mean the people will have to endure oppressive regime. No recourse whatsoever to have him removed. Their only hope would be that the king would not live too long. Or the son taking his place would have a better character. Here's, ladies and gentlemen, the good news of the kingdom. You ready? God is willing to govern your life. God is willing to govern the human race. Well, how's that good news? How's that good news? Because he's a good king. He doesn't put oppression on his people. Now, hear the words of a king. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When he's your king, nothing else is. He sets you free to serve him. Says of Christ in Isaiah 9, there is no end to the increase of his government, or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Revelation 19:6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do today? Now that you've heard his voice. R.C. Sproul, to quote him, the kingdom of God is not for the people, by the people. 
Excuse me, let me start again. The kingdom of God is not of the people, by the people, or for the people. It is a kingdom ruled by a king, and God does not rule by the consent of his subjects, but by his sovereign authority. His reign extends over me, whether I vote for him or not. What have you done with Jesus? What's your response to the gospel? The gospel of the kingdom. That God, in his love for humanity, the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, became a man. Born of a virgin. Lived an absolutely flawless, sinless, perfect life. Then went to the cross. And all the sins of all those who would ever believe were laid on him. And he suffered in their place and died. The death that we deserved. And three days later he rose from the dead. God declaring him to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection, the book of Romans says. He's now in the place of all authority in the universe and commands, the gospel is a command, repent and believe the good news. I'm willing to govern your life and I'll free you from your sins and give you my righteousness as a gift that you might stand before the Father always in perfect righteousness. What will, what will you do? Christian, have you heard his voice today? Don't harden your heart. Those who are far from Christ, you've heard his voice. Don't harden your heart. Don't allow an evil heart of unbelief to be your heart. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We would heed, we would obey. As we hear your word, let us not be those that harden, but respond in repentance and faith. Be the Lord and Savior of our lives. Let us confess you as such. For the scripture says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Give us hearts that are pliable to do exactly this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.